Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, current investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So far on the pod, we've had a key emphasis on subscription-based business models, whether those be direct-to-consumer like Ape Dollar Shave Club or enterprise software focused like a Salesforce or a Workday. However, we haven't so much spoken on why exactly subscription models are so in vogue right now. And although I myself could drone on for the next hour as to why I'm personally so bullish on subscription models, I have instead decided to save you from such a horrific fate and have pulled in Teen Zua, the world's foremost authority on the subscription economy as today's podcast guest. Teen is the CEO and founder of Zora, which recently went public at a $1.4 billion valuation after raising from individuals including Mark Benioff and Dave Duffield, as well as VCs like Greylock Partners and Benchmark Capital. Now, for those in the audience who are unfamiliar, Zora is the leading SaaS provider for the subscription economy, offering order-to-revenue services ranging from subscription billing to metrics and reporting. Zora itself was born out of Teen's own experiences at Salesforce, where he helped pioneer the cloud-based subscription model as both chief strategy officer and chief marketing officer. So in today's episode, we're going to dive into why exactly subscription-based business models are the future. And in leaving behind this whole product ownership mentality, Tina and I are going to discuss how subscription models enable not only a better customer experience, but also support a more resilient financial model. Additionally, we'll talk through tangible strategies around pricing and sales commissions that can help accelerate a company's transformation into the world of subscription offerings. So why don't we get started? Hey, Dean, how's it going? Good. Good to talk to you, John. Yeah, thanks for taking some time today. I am excited to talk about subscription models here as well as Zora's founding story. So why don't we get started with a little bit about your background and how that inspired you to start Zora? Yeah, so I've been an enterprise software guy for my entire career. I left when I graduated college. Actually, went right into Oracle. This was in the 90s. I did a couple of years of consulting and then actually joined a sales organization selling database and tools infrastructure to mostly large companies. I spent a year at a company called Crossworlds and then about nine years at Salesforce.com and then started Azure about just over 10 years ago. And there's a common thread across the entire career. It's really having a passion for enterprise software and always looking for what is the next big thing in enterprise software. You know, in the 90s, it was client server. Crossworld was this idea of building an integration platform that can disintermediate other enterprise applications. That idea was probably not quite technically feasible. Salesforce was obviously about, in hindsight, right, SaaS models, cloud computing. And Zora 10 years ago was a bet that business models are fundamentally changing. And that's this subscription-based business model has fundamentally disrupted the software space and it turned into software as a service was going to permeate and spread across all industries. So you'd get transportation as a service, entertainment as a service, food as a service, in addition to software as a service. And we're pretty pleased that that call that we made over 10 years ago has really played out. And you've been really instrumental in championing this whole shift and this whole new wave of subscription business models and software as a service specifically, where Zora has more or less enabled the entire industry from an underlying infrastructure perspective. So can you talk a little bit about some of the pain points involved with the legacy business model around pushing product and being product centric, as opposed to locking in recurring revenues over time and keeping close to your customer through a subscription business model? 
Yeah. You know, there's a whole bunch of things and you can sort of take it piece by piece. Certainly for us folks that came from the software sector before software as a service, there's a moment in time where you launch a software as a service product and all of a sudden you realize, right, that you can see what your customers are doing. And we all take this for granted right now, but to experience that first when you grew up in a world where you had no idea what your customers are doing with your software product that was installed in, on their site, it was transformational. And it makes you want to change the whole way that you build and launch products. And you know, a lot of your listeners being startup companies can relate to that. Now imagine that every manufacturer, every physical good in the whole world can see the same thing. How are my users driving my cars? How are my users using my tractors? How often are my elevators being used? How are people walking on my floors, right? Or sitting at their desks? And it just changes what you can do for your customers. You can engage with them in a much, much deeper way. You can provide something of much deeper value to them. You can focus on the outcomes that they're looking for versus just selling them a product and letting them own whether the product works for them or not. And then really, really quickly, you realize that the business model has to follow. That if the name of this game is to have a long-running engagement with your users, then having a business model mapped to that and having incentive structures such that you actually care about how they're using the product, and the more they use your product, the more your revenues grow, then that's where the vendor and the customer locks into a very, very different relationship then when you were just, when it was a, call it an asset transfer model, where I'm just trying to get you to buy my physical asset. And, you know, after that, it's your problem. I couldn't agree more there, where in the legacy model, there's so many frustrations around pushing product, let's say through an intermediary, like a retailer, and having absolutely no idea who actually is buying your product, and whether or not they're satisfied with that product, as well as how you could potentially improve that product experience for that specific customer. So with the rise of subscription models, however, you flip that relationship on its head and you now have a finger on the pulse of that customer where you can leverage the insights that you derive from that direct relationship in order to constantly improve your product as opposed to, let's say, releasing a new product once a year. So one of my favorite insights that you speak about in your book, Subscribed, is that even if a competitor comes out with an exact copycat product, you'll still have a competitive advantage because you know exactly what your customer wants and you have this long-term relationship and analytics driving your product decisioning. Now, the other aspect I love about recurring revenue models here is that every quarter you are guaranteed a stream of revenues, right? You're not starting every week with $0 in the bank. You have a guaranteed subscription base. So then my question for you is, just given how attractive this whole business model can be for companies, what are some challenges that companies often face when they're transitioning from that legacy one-time sales model? Well, we had a meeting a few years ago in the gaming industry, and there's so much of the gaming industry is now is in subscriptions. But back then, most games were still being sold one console unit at a time. But this gaming company had just launched a subscription service for their old back catalog, if you will, right? The old games that nobody wanted. And next thing you know, like they had, a, I think it's a quarter million people subscribed to it. And so the CEO said, look, there's something here in the subscriptions. Let's do an offsite, a two-day offsite about it. And we came and kicked it off and helped facilitate some of the discussions. And the CEO painted this amazing vision that says, look, we know when we come up with a game, we saw a lot of games two years later, we come up with the next version that bought the first version, we'll buy the next version, right? And the SaaS company, you hear that, you're saying, well, that's like losing 50% of your customers every two years. I mean, that, that's extreme churn. And so he said, let's look at it a different way, right? Instead of taking the $60 up front, let's take the $60 over time. Let's keep the customer engaged and it's going to be transformational for us. And it all made sense. But then what you saw in the room is everybody struggled on how to make that happen, right? What does it mean to take $60 over time? So the CFO starts freaking out. We don't have these big tentpole launches anymore because we're just dribbling out features over time. So the marketing department starts freaking out. 
the product organization says, well, I don't know how to do like monthly releases of new things. I know how to two your product life cycles, package it up and ship it to the retailers. And so the point really was the complete transformation of how that company operated and how that company thinks. And that's why software companies have to do a big transformation to become software as a subscription companies. But now you multiply that. We work with some of the biggest companies in the world, the General Motors, the Caterpillars, the GEs of the world. And imagine these big industrial companies having to do that shift. But that's exactly what's going on across all these industries today. Right. So in yesterday's world, your product teams would gear up for, let's say, two big product releases a year. Whereas in today's world, they have to shift their culture, their planning process, and sometimes even their org structure to instead constantly iterate and release product updates in an agile way. And then, like you said, the finance organization has to go from billing, let's say, 100 customers once a year to billing 1,000 customers 12 times a year. But that conversion is obviously well worth it in the long run. So oftentimes, as a software investor myself, I'm interested in the alpha that you can potentially create from converting a legacy license maintenance business into a cloud-based SaaS model. So then what are some levers you can pull, let's say restructuring sales commissions or introducing customer incentives that help accelerate that conversion? I think there's a huge fear of cannibalization in the segment of the software sector that sells, still sells mostly perpetual software. And this is a few years ago, right? And so they would see the SaaS initiative as a side initiative. Maybe it's targeting down market. Maybe it's targeting SMBs. Maybe it's a product line that, that has limited functionality and, and it's not going to cannibalize the, build, the, the big product. And what you saw was these efforts really, really failed because sales reps wouldn't sell it. Customers wouldn't want it. But I think it's really, really different now. First of all, I think customers are demanding these types of uh, new pricing models. They're, they're, they're used to having pay-as-you-go models. And so they're refusing to pay up front. And I think, you know, examples like Adobe or PTC of companies that are saying, you know, we switched to this model. And yes, in the short term, revenues are down. In the short term, profit is down. But there's enough metrics out there that we can show around ARR, around churn, around average cost per customer, where if we show the right metrics to Wall Street, they understand it. And you've seen, you know, market caps actually go up during this transition. In the book, we talk about this fish model, because what happens, you see revenues come down and go back up. You see expenses actually go back up in the short term, right? Because you're dealing with all this Amazon or Colo-like infrastructure. And then it comes back down as you get to scale. But companies understand how software companies can really navigate the fish. You touch on the sales force. You absolutely do have to restructure commissions so that it's agnostic for the salesperson to sell perpetual versus subscriptions. For companies that are saying, look, we're going 100% in this direction, they'll go a step further and actually make it more beneficial for to sell subscriptions versus perpetual models. Because at the end of the day, right, and it isn't not just your sales reps, if you sell through a reseller channel, that's certainly the case as well. But, but you got to structure your channel to support this model. Okay. So let's say we're an exec at a primarily licensed maintenance software business, and we've decided that subscription revenue is the future. How should I think about pricing and structuring that subscription product? Yeah, if you're an enterprise software company, you've sold under a perpetual model, I'm not sure that premium is necessarily the path that you want to go down. The point is to do what you do well today. And if you're selling perpetual software, chances are you're selling more upmarket, larger companies, medium-sized companies, where that freemium model might not really make sense. Oftentimes, you can actually move to subscriptions you know, before you move your software platform to the cloud as well and sell, sell term licenses, if you will, that look and feel like subscriptions that have the ability to self-update and so on and so forth. So you can do on-premise subscriptions with self-updating software as a bridge step. With respect to pricing, I think 
what we see the traditional software companies moving really miss is this whole idea of an upsell motion. And so if you used to sell, keep the number straight, a $300,000 perpetual piece of software, and you say, from now on, I'm going to take it $100,000 a year, that's not bad. But what you really want is you really want to grow within your customers, right? The benefit of this recurring revenue model is if you can start every year with a known revenue base that recurs, then you layer on top of that growth. This is how the SaaS companies are delivering 30, 40, 50% growth because half or even 75% of their bookings, their new bookings, the ARR growth, if you will, is actually coming from existing customers. And so the way you do that is you have to have a pricing model where you don't take the entire deal off the table, but then as customers use more and more of your product, your revenue simply grows with them. That creates a low-cost growth motion that Wall Street and other companies really, really love. And this is why Wall Street is obsessed with metrics like net dollar retention. Because if you've got a strong net dollar retention, then I know you've got built-in growth in your business model today. And then you can always layer on more new customer acquisitions or more add-on product sales and so on and so forth. But at least you've got a built-in growth model. And pricing and packaging is really the number one technique that you use to make that happen. And just to break that down for the audience, net dollar retention, or you'll also hear the term net revenue retention, is this metric that tracks whether or not on a cohort by cohort basis, your users, inclusive of any users in that cohort who have since left you or who have churned, whether or not that group of users is spending more with you this year than they were last year. So if I were working with a best-in-class software company that's at scale, I would expect that for every dollar I spend with you this year, I will likely spend at least a dollar and 10 cents with you next year. And why that matters so much is that acquiring an additional dollar of revenue from an existing customer is a lot cheaper than going out and acquiring an entirely new customer and convincing them to use your product. So my question here is, with a software company building a subscription model and focusing on upsells, how do you figure out whether or not that net revenue retention is related to true, genuine, increased customer usage and happiness versus just maybe initially pricing your base product too cheaply? I would say, obviously, you want to price that initial logo land sufficiently to support the cost of sales to do that. But once you get through these and you actually see an upsell motion in your second, third, or fourth year transitioning, I mean, that's just like gold. Right. Again, mm-hmm. when, you, when you wake up at the start of the quarter and you know you're going to deliver, call it 10, 15, 20% growth just by your customer base, using more of your features, using more of your products, adding more users, using more API transactions or storage or whatever you chose to price. I mean, that's just an awesome thing because that gives you the predictability of driving growth and the success in your model. And so I'm actually going to say the opposite. I would actually say don't obsess with making that first deal the largest deal possible. Create a fair deal, allow your customers to get in and simply expand with them over time. The companies that do that well are the companies that can deliver consistent growth. I like that perspective. So we touched pretty briefly on the transformation that a subscription model has in terms of your product and your engineering mentality, where you're transitioning from these yearly product lifecycle releases to a more agile and iterative approach to development. Could you speak a little bit more towards that transformation? Yeah, so once you realize that you can actually see how your customer is using your product, then a two-year product lifecycle with no changes in between is just insane because you can't take advantage of that. 
And so you naturally gravitate to a point where, look, let's get some basic capabilities out and then let's see what happens. And so there's a whole chapter in the book we call, you know, always in beta. And we talk about Gmail and Gmail went through this experience as one of the first highly visible products that did this, where, you know, Google launched a whole new approach to mail with the threading and the user interfaces. And they said, look, let's just get this thing out there and let's call it beta, right? Because we're not sure if this thing is right yet. Five years later, they were still calling the product beta. And so you log in and there's a Gmail logo and it's got the word beta across it. And the only reason one day they woke up and said, well, we should probably remove the word beta is these large companies wanted to buy Gmail, but the purchasing, the procurement departments would say, look, well, we have a policy of not buying anything that's, that's beta. We can't pay for your product. And so they said, <laughs> well, let's just take the beta logo away, right? But by that time, it was just standard operating procedure. They would just constantly iterate and every month you'd log into Gmail and there'd be another new capability But we all noticed that there's this autofill thing now that's going on. And so we call this the always in beta mode, right? What started off as saying, let's launch beta products is the natural way of doing things right now. And again, this is not just a software story, but you're seeing Tesla update their cars every few weeks. You're seeing the set-top boxes update themselves, the smart TVs update themselves. And this is just simply the modern way of designing any product. And in keeping theme with the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition, what are some consistent patterns that you've seen across successful subscription companies? Well, this whole concept of iteration is across the board. And a lot of your listeners are going to be software companies. And I bring out the non-software industrial manufacturing examples just to kind of bring it out, right? And when they ask, what is the lesson? And we say, well, look, one of the biggest mistakes is we get to work with so many companies on this is they don't have this data mentality, right? They, they launch an initial service and they sit back. And so, you know, we worked with a newspaper company that launched their first digital paywall. And our experience with digital media company, digital newspapers, when they set up a paywall is their subscriber acquisition always far exceeds what they thought would happen. And so there's a lot of pent up demand for what they have. They don't even realize when they were offering their product for free, right? That's how silly it was. But then the opposite happens. What they realize is churn is also higher. You get a lot of people that sign up and try to read it. And I remember one company said, you know what we, what we forgot to do is we forgot to put the infrastructure in to measure usage and customer behavior. So we can't actually see what the determinants of churn are and we're having a hard time predicting this stuff. And so they put the infrastructure in, let it run for about three months. And now they have the data to go and learn what to do about, about their customers. So they said, look, the number one lesson for us in hindsight is we should have put that infrastructure in place. So knowing that you're going to iterate, keeping the team on board, tasking them and not worrying about the first release of the product is not successful is the DNA that companies really don't have. The second thing is around the channel. And a lot of companies will launch a product. And we talked about with software salespeople echoes this whole thing. And they don't realize that you've got to retrain the channel and rethink how they sell these products to be successful. And it does require a completely different motion. And sometimes it actually requires an overlay sales organization to say, I'm going to sell this product first, get it successful before I flip the switch and get my entire channel, right? Again, whether it's dealers, resellers, or your internal salespeople to do so. I'll throw one more thing out there, which is the financials. And this is a completely different financial model. And if you take a traditional income statement lens to a subscription-based business model, you can't actually see things like time aspects, customer lifetime value versus customer acquisition costs. But two, you can't see the competitive edge that you have. And the example we use in the book is Netflix. Netflix spends upwards of like over $10 billion a year now buying content. And the Hollywood guys that are used to paying for a movie and then trying to sell as many tickets, you know, the traditional transactional model per unit model can't understand this. 
But the thing is, Netflix has 130 million subscribers that pay it, call it $100 a year. And that's $13 billion of recurring predictable revenue. And it only costs them, I think, a, a few billion dollars to stream the whole thing. So you can see they've got the cash, right? They've got predictable cash that they can use to spend on acquiring new content because that's how they acquire new customers. And, uh, and so there's a power that actually comes with the recurring business model. And in finance departments, historically, have been more about cost accounting, right? Let's go ahead and track all the costs so we can report on it. And they really need to shift into these business model architects to try to figure out how do we use this recurring business model as a strategic weapon or a competitive weapon in a way of building a valuable business with a high multiple. Yeah, definitely a key emphasis there on valuation multiples when it comes to evaluating a recurring versus a non-recurring business, where let's say you have a legacy software business in today's market, they'd likely trade anywhere between two to maybe four times revenue, depending on their growth and their profitability. Whereas if you have a top of the line recurring software business, let's say like a Salesforce, you'll trade anywhere between seven to 20 times recurring revenue in the public markets. So the valuation case in terms of building shareholder value is very, very clear as to why you'd make that transition. Now, on the flip side, we just spoke about patterns that are consistent across companies that have successfully transitioned into the subscription model. What are some patterns of companies that have failed to make that transformation? Well, there has to be sponsorship from the top. I think what happens is they pay lip service to this thing. They spin out a new team. They put it on the side. And they don't work through the challenges, right? They don't work through the challenges of saying, okay, the initial product wasn't quite right. The financial model isn't giving us the freedom to invest. The channel isn't really embracing this thing. And there's no executive air cover to really protect these things as they kind of go through the learnings. And so we do see that a lot. Yeah, and perhaps there's a champion of the original idea that left the organization mm-hmm. and the whole thing just kind of dies on the vine. And so I'd say that's probably one of the most important patterns that we see in terms of why these initiatives truly fail. But I would say that's slowly going away because I think what companies are finding is that their customers are starting to demand these things, right? Once you use Uber or Lyft, your need to buy a car lessens. Once you use Salesforce.com, you don't really want to go back to the SAP model. And once you start using Apple Music or Spotify, you just stop buying individual songs and individual CDs. And, and so customers are really driving companies to make this change today. Got it. That makes sense. And then the last question for you here is, what is your current favorite application of the subscription model in today's economy? Any specific examples of innovation there? Well, first thing I've flagged is even things like Uber and Lyft, we see these as subscription businesses, mm-hmm. you know, and because it's, they know who you are. You've got an Uber ID, you've got a Lyft ID, you've got a credit card. They've chosen to monetize that relationship on a per ride basis. But you can see companies like Lyft really starting to experiment for, I think it was $3.99, Right, they're targeting a commuter. You know, you can take the lift ten times a week, twice a day, if you will, and it's a flat fee, and it's all predictable. Right, Amazon Prime is another great example of a company that plays plays around with monetization models to really maximize that relationship. And so, we really see that the whole world is like this. I mean, Munchery is another service that I use once in a while. I can just whip out my phone and say, "Look, I'm going to be home in two hours to fix something," and, and the food's there, hot and fresh, when when you get there. This is where the world is going. I'll even say, you know, in San Francisco here, the scooters are back and you're walking down the street and you see a scooter there and you're saying, look, this could take 10 minutes off my walk and just to be able to whip out your phone. And the next thing you know, it's happened to the services. It's an amazing world that we live in and it's only going to get bigger. Everything around you, every physical product is going to turn into a service that you can tap into, you subscribe to, and the world's going to be completely different five years from now. 
I love the vision, and I am very glad that Zora has been the one to champion a significant amount of that. But, Tin, I think that's our time today, and I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Enjoy awesome. talking. Thanks. Once again, a big thank you to Teen for joining us today. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to do two things. Number one being check out Teen's new book, Subscribe, as well as number two, subscribe to this podcast. But as always, if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can reach me on Twitter at John Heasy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y, or on Instagram at John Jihu, that's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.